0: Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting podcast. On today's show, we have something really special for you during this leadership crisis. We were able to get Rebecca Costa, author of On the Verge and The Watchman's Rattle, two incredible books. I've read both of them.
1: And she's a futurist and a sociobiologist, Greg. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm a lighting dork, but you also, other people that listen to this most likely are, but. This one is a, good, a great discussion we had. We didn't really relate a lot of it to lighting, so get over it. Take your time and listen to it, because it is definitely worth it. And it's
0: brought to you by the whole leadership series. is brought to you by our association, should be your association, which is the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Get associated, son. Get Rebecca Costa in your life right now on the Get a Grip on Lighting show. Welcome to the show, Rebecca.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
0: Say hi to Greg Eric. Hello. Hi, Rebecca. I, I, we're
2: up? we're all working remotely and uh, adjusting to this new reality, and I I find it as an expert in fast adaptation, I find it remarkable. This is a this is a worldwide laboratory for me.
1: <laughs> can't wait! I can't wait to start talking to you about it. <laughs> we got a lot going on, but I want to get a little start because some of this stuff is new to me. Michael knows a lot more about it, but. Can you give me an idea of what is a sociobiologist? That's what you call yourself.
2: Uh, A sociobiologist looks at uh, evolutionary history of human beings and then matches what we know about our evolutionary, our biological history to what's going on in society. So that can be everything from how we organize politically to uh, how we make decisions individually, what actually drives us. So frequently it overlaps with... uh, Evolutionary psychology, uh, evolutionary biology, those kinds of things. So as you can imagine, at a time like this where you have a black swan moment, um, this is just uh, you know a field day for an evolutionary biologist.
1: Oh, for sure. And why do you describe yourself as a futurist?
2: Well, that was a label that was actually put on me. Um, It wasn't something I described, it was something that uh, people that were introducing me kept introducing me in that way. And um, I think people think when you describe yourself as a futurist, that you are immediately, you know, we're pummeled with uh, questions on what stocks to buy, uh, (laughs) and whether we talk to dead people or read tarot cards. That's not the kind of futurist I am. Uh, I'm a data futurist. What I do is I work on many people are for the first time, getting introduced to predictive modeling. Um, that's what I do. So if you have a million or a billion or a trillion data points, it's not that hard to predict what the next data point's going to be. And we're right. amassing so much data right now that our ability to predict the next data point or the next action that's going to take place is getting more and more precise by the second.
1: Got it. And how many books have you written?
2: I've written two books, and I just recently contributed a chapter to the 50th anniversary uh, book uh, following Alvin Toffler's uh, Future Shock. It's called Aftershock, and they approached the 50 top futurists in the world and ask them each to contribute a chapter on what the next 50 years are going to look like. Now this was pre-coronavirus. <laughs> uh, but 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 interestingly enough uh, pandemic viruses uh, do come up in in the book but many of the things that we were predicting uh really a kind of I think are are maybe set back a few years now but uh, but it's a very phenomenal book because if you really want to get a a global perspective from the 50 top futurists of what's going to happen five years, 20 years, 50 years, and how can we get ready for it, you know, there's never been a better time to talk about that.
1: So what was that book called again? Sorry,
2: It's called Aftershock.
1: Aftershock, okay.
2: Aftershock, and it's, uh, it's a 50th year anniversary of uh, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, which as you know, he called it. He He called it for 50 years. Uh, and is just an incredible futurist. And he was the beginning of the futurist movement, you right. know, which is a scientific movement. It's a it's a movement to take the data we have today and then project it outward and see what we can know about future events and future trends.
1: Now, I'm certain we're going to deep dive into these books and Michael's going to be excited to talk. But can you give me just a quick overview of the ones you the two that you've written, what they are?
2: Yeah, The Watchman's Rattle was the first book I put out. It took me, um, I don't know, maybe 10 years of thinking and eight years of writing,
1: (laughs) researching
2: writing. It was a long time coming. Actually, I went to my mentor, Edward O. Wilson, the greatest naturalist in the world, and I asked him to read my book just so that I wouldn't embarrass myself in the scientific Mm. community if I was just completely off base. And uh, when he got done, the the words out of his mouth was, what took you so long? I've written (laughs) dozens of books. You know in that time frame. I wasn't sure my my observations and my interpretations of history were quite right. In that book, and, and it's very relevant for today, in that book I identify what are the conditions that a society goes through before it con- completely collapses. I wasn't interested in the triggering event because I think historians have covered what the triggering event was for the collapse of the Mayan civilization or the Roman Empire or the Ming Empire. I was interested in was the society behaving in some way prior to the trigger event that set them up to uh, for unilateral collapse and it turns out there were four stages that they went through. the first is social systems, like their government systems or monetary systems, became too complex for the average citizens to actually understand and so uh because they were too complicated for the average person on the street to understand what happens is there's a shift from Uh, being able to tell what's an empirical fact to uh, accepting unproven beliefs. And then the third step is when that shift begins to occur where we can't discern an empirical fact from an unproven belief, then public policy starts to become based on unproven beliefs and opinions. And once that shift occurs, then the society is actually primed for some event to cause a unilateral collapse. Now, when I say collapse, I don't mean we all die. I mean that the social systems revert to what our brains have evolved to be able to handle. So rather than credit default swaps, which nobody on Wall Street can explain to me in any way that makes sense, and I'm a pretty smart person, but I can't understand a credit default swap, I can understand barter. That's what my brain has evolved over millions of Mm. years to understand. You have some eggs. I have some milk. We meet in the street. We bicker a little bit. We both think we got the better deal and we leave. We we make the exchange and we leave. That is what the human brain has evolved to this point in time to understand. So we've kind of gotten ourselves to a point where we can't discern a fact from uh, from an unproven belief. And that has set us up to be very, very vulnerable to follow charismatic leaders and so on and so forth. So that was the first book. And I wrote that book seven years ago, not knowing the events which were going to occur and getting back to your question. A lot of people said, well, you were so prescient, you nailed it. You, 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 you you talked about the behaviors that are going on right now. Mm. And so we're setting ourselves up for collapse. And I said, well, I do believe there will be a massive correction. I don't know what the triggering event will be, but I know there will be a global correction in financial markets, in healthcare and everything. There will be a unilateral correction at one time. So that book has remained in the top 1% of Amazon sales for seven years. It was a dark horse. My publisher's doing a dance right now because, you know, they've... Uh, an evolutionary biologist writing a book about social trends, you know, that's not exactly a money maker next to Harry Potter or, you know, uh, vampires that fall in love. I mean, you know, if I was if I was writing books to uh, make money, I would have thrown a couple of boy wizards and vampires in there.
0: Right. Watchman's I mean, my rattle, second I think book is about predictive
2: analytics. I wanted to be very optimistic. It's called On the Verge. The first book is named, is titled The Watchman's Rattle. The second book was we're getting so good at being able to model future events that it really is kind of throwing a wrench in the way that we look at problems because we're now able to solve problems before they occur. And this has thrown this into some kind of a political debate as to whether they're going to occur or not. And unless we trust artificial intelligence models, if we resist that, we're going to suddenly be on the problem and we won't be able to fix it in time because some of these things have very, very long lead times. And I think we're experiencing that right now. So that's how I get the label futurist. I write about things which... (laughs) are actually occurring and i can see that they're going to become more and more important to society and then people think that you know what stocks they should buy
0: right <laughs> the but my concern with on the verge um is that and 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 your opinion in the book is that it pr- it proposes scientific solutions to what i believe are moral problems you know i don't think I think a lot of our problems are not that we don't have enough science. It's that we don't have the moral guidance to make the right choices. You know, I think our, I think our, that, you know, Mm -hmm. yes, I believe that, you know, there is uh, a role for data and I believe there is a role for analytics, but I think that it can't solve the moral issues that we face with a lot of these problems.
2: Let's talk about a specific issue where you feel, the, that you know maybe morality is in conflict with science, or that science can't solve a moral problem let let's let's drill down to a specific example.
0: okay um hmm. let's take well here's i I think the problem with the social sciences is that each solution that is implemented becomes the next problem, okay? so for example, let's say you take um, shareholder value as the guiding force of um, capitalism. So that was adopted, I'm not sure when, in the 70s. I think you talked about it a little bit in, in one of the books. I read both of them. Um, or, you know, that's a moral problem, right? That, you know, even if you have predictive analytics, you can't solve the cognitive dissonance of at one time, maybe there's a moral issue of exporting, you know, mask manufacturing, say, to China and relying on China as as it, for inputs for for uh, essential materials and then shareholder value, which dictates that you should do that. You know, so I I think some of these problems are not solvable by science. I think they're only solvable by going back to uh, having a common moral aesthetic that we all follow, which we've lost. Well,
2: it depends on what your goal is. You know, if if I consult with a lot of global companies, right? So what is your goal? Do you wanna be around 200, 300? a million years actually somebody suggested that i write a book called the million year company how would a how would a company that was positioning itself to exist for a million years not 50 years not 20 years how would they behave right well scientifically we know how they would behave we know what it takes to make workers happy and to produce the most that they can right for the longest duration of time We know that healthy workers produce better than unhealthy workers. We know that happy workers produce more than unhappy workers. We have the scientific data. So I would say that I don't feel that morality and science are uh, conflicting. I feel that many times we think that things are mutually exclusive because our brain can't handle the the ambivalence. of Both are true. Both are true. Yes, you need morality. What gets in the way of human morality? It turns out what gets in the way are primitive, uh, ancient instincts, right? I have a friend of mine who keeps reminding me of this quote, and I don't know if it's his or, or not. He's a, uh, he teaches uh, sociology at a major university, and he has this wonderful quote, and he says, anarchy is five missed meals away. Yeah, for sure. You take any society, and they miss five meals, and all hell breaks loose. For sure, right? And it's and, happening. And so it's happening in
0: Poland like, right you know, now. We're
2: all in it together, kumbaya. It disintegrates very, very quickly, and suddenly it's you know, do you have a gun? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so when you when you look at morality, you say, well, morality is this thin veneer, and it and, and underneath it are all of the uh, the biological and instinctual assets which allowed human populations to grow from potentially 300 there were potentially only 300 human beings left on the entire planet and from that we our frontal cortex grew we are a absolute miracle that we survived because think about how hard we work to keep animals from becoming extinct we didn't have any helpers we did this on our own and we rose to the top of the living pyramid, but let us not confuse the fact that those instincts that allowed us to prevail and go to the top of the living human, uh, pyramid are still within us. Now I'm going to give you a funny example because we need to, you know, we need to lighten this conversation up a little bit. <laughs> At this point, everyone's saying, should I just drive my car off a, off a cliff? Um, uh, so I'm going to give you a fun example. I was talking to a CEO of a major corporation and he said, you know, I, I know how you feel that there are a lot of primitive instincts at work, you know, in corporations and that we need to be aware of them and we need to, you know, put in compensatory systems to, to account for them. Um, and 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 he said, but I, I, I really don't function on primitive instincts. And I said, I thought about it for a minute and I said, do you ever do any grocery shopping? And he said, yeah, I do. My wife and I take turns. And I said, okay, I'm going I'm to do you a big favor. I'm going to save you a lot of time at the grocery store. You'll thank me for this. And he said, why is that? And I said, the next time you go to a grocery store, don't go up and down all the aisles looking for what you need. Go straight to the checkout line and just, you know, everything you need is in other people's baskets, bread, milk, vegetables, right? Whatever you need, just take it out of their baskets and put it in yours. He said, I'm not going to do that. And I said, they haven't paid for it yet. It doesn't belong to them. Mm. What do you suppose would happen? And he said, well, they'd call the manager. Probably some guy would punch me out. And, and I said, but it doesn't belong to him. The basket doesn't belong to him. The food doesn't belong to him. Why can't you just go and take the stuff out and get in line? And, he, and, and because territoriality. Mm-hmm territoriality amongst animals. Their territory is the geographic space that contains all of the food and water and the perimeter that they can protect. It's basic to their survival. In modern times, your territory might be your shopping basket. And if you don't believe me, you don't even have to take anything out. Just go over near someone's basket and say, oh, hey, and go and touch their basket or touch something inside their basket and watch their reaction.
0: You know, that's the the supper plate idea. Where do these rituals of eating dinner come from? You know, you have your own space. Your plate is set before you. You have your knife and your fork and there's like this imaginary sphere around you and you don't point with the cutlery and you don't eat off other people's plates. But these are very complex manners that we've developed in our culture over centuries and centuries and centuries and there's an evolutionary um evolutionary aspect to that as well is there not
2: as what? very much so but getting back to your point of morals Mm -hmm. right morals are truly a way of containing of containing what actually has uh uh you know that we've carried with us For hundreds of millions of years, and that was Mm -hmm. and 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 instincts that were responsible for our very survival, and we have not cleansed that out of our DNA. You know that's part of our genetic heritage, and and so sometimes we revert to that. We Mm -hmm. become territorial. Uh, We worry about our status. You know, in in troops, status means better mate selection, better food selection. You know, uh, better protection, and and so. You know, there are a lot of things working all the time. Human beings are extremely complex, which is why I would say, you know, I've studied physics as just a hobby because I loved mathematics so much. But I will tell you that the social sciences are so much more complex than physics. Physics is Mm rule-based. Human beings are anything but rule-based. And so social sciences, in some ways, as you point out, it bumps up against morality. But as an evolutionary biologist, I will tell you that morals are there to tamper down and control primitive instincts that are not beneficial in a modern society
0: i would say those are manners
2: no they might be manners sometimes as you point out you know we have our plate with our food on it and you know i'm one of those people that when people go well do you want to taste mine i always (laughs) decline and then they say can i taste yours i say yes yes but I don't really want their fork taking my food. Like, sure. just, If you wanted some of mine, order it. Order it. Sure. You, you know, yeah. I'm one of those. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but people are always going, well, you know, let's share. Hmm. Ah.
1: You can't go to dinner with Michael because he'll steal all the food off your plate.
2: <laughs> oh, Do you remember in some of the gag stores they had this fork that would extend
1: out? Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it, you know, it, 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 it was like a, I forget what they had they had a clever name for it but it was a fork and it would get longer and longer so you could get somebody you could go across the table and get someone's food. that was a nightmare for me
0: in your uh in on the verge you outlined 12 principles that um I think are interesting to to think about right now in terms of the current crisis and perhaps if we can get your thoughts as they relate to the principles on right. Um,
2: in, in On the Verge, I was trying to look at nature and say, well, when there's a sudden shift in the environment that's really drastic, which we're, as you know, we're all undergoing right now, what separates the survivors from the the ones that don't make it, that, that mm-hmm. fall extinct? And, uh, you know, the greatest empirical uh, laboratory that we have is Mother Nature herself. Mm-hmm. of all the living organisms on the face of the earth have gone extinct, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't bode well for the human population. So as I look at it, I go, well, what strategies did they use when when there were sudden shifts in in the environment? And then I tried to translate those for businesses and nonprofits and Mm -hmm. any organization that they might be able to use those. So let's just take one of the twelve, because we won't have enough time to go through all the, all twelve. But one of them is that um, any drive towards singularity mm-hmm. is a drive toward extinction. Yes. Right. So the way that I explain that, you know, to laymen who may not be interested in biology is: Why do we have so many types of fish? Why do we have thousands of types of birds and 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 ants and and you know why isn't there just one one type? And the reason is because when the environment changes, some of them will have or adapt to very easily to the change in the environment, and others aren't going to make it, Mm -hmm. right? So that's true of human beings. It's true of organizations. Some of the organizations will be resilient. They will respond quickly, and they will have what is necessary, the flexibility, the adaptability to be able to change at a moment's notice. So we're looking at that right now. Let's look at the city of New York. It's been very interesting for me to watch uh, Andrew Cuomo's press conferences. Mm -hmm. Because when you really distill them all down, he's not betting on one solution. He's doing exactly what he needs to do. He's basically saying, you do everything. You do everything, right? Because just like venture capitalists that might be investing in let's say 3d printing they don't put all their money in one company they invest in maybe 20 30 leading companies and they let them go through first round of funding and then when they get to through the first round of funding they say how far along are you and then they kill a number of them right mm-hmm. so it's like a funnel they start out with maybe 30 companies They go to 10 for second round funding, they go to five for third round funding, and eventually they're going to get a a company that is the most advanced and they can send them out for an IPO or an acquisition or however they're going to get their money back. In the same way, Andrew Cuomo was doing the same thing. He opened up the funnel as wide as possible, instead of betting on one solution to cure the supply chain problem, the PPE problem, the ventilator problem, the, the hospital bed problem. He said, I'm going out to everything and some things will work and some will not. In a fast changing high failure rate environment, the worst thing you can do is try to analyze it and place all your bet on a single solution because that's dead. In, 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 the, in the biological world, that's extinction.
1: Now, will the uh, you know relating it to now the coronavirus to some degree, will will that have or does it have the potential to have catastrophic consequences on our civilization?
2: It's difficult to say right now. Even as a biologist, it's it's difficult for me to answer that question. I know that's not comforting, and it's not very comforting to talk to scientists when they say, "Well, we don't know." Nobody likes that answer. The truth is that. as of this point, we know that the coronavirus has mutated at least into eight different lineages. Um, and, and so we don't know if those lineages are, are uh, more powerful strains or less powerful strains or need to be treated on their own. This is the trouble with a vaccine. You do know that flu vaccines look at all the possible flu viruses that you could get, and then we just basically take a bet. We say we think these are the strains that are going to be most popular and move the fastest. And so that's what your flu vaccine is. But it's a it's a calculated guess to the best of our ability. And it doesn't mean we guessed right. In fact, flu vaccines are maybe at most uh, work 20 percent to 30 percent of the time. 30 percent would be a good year. Right. So coming up with a vaccine, in my view, is uh, it's necessary, but. It doesn't account for the eight other lineages. We're going after a vaccine for the coronavirus that we have now, right? And the one that is spreading. So we're not going after the mutations. So when we get the, the uh, vaccine, my worry is we kind of have a false sense of comfort that we got it, you know, because that's, that's the story we want. That's the movie, right? That's the Tom uh-huh. Cruise movie. Somebody comes up with it. Hey, we got a vaccine person gets the, the cover of Time magazine. Now coronavirus is all over. Let's prepare so that we never let a virus get out of hand again. I don't think that that's the solution. But what we have learned is that if you ask people to stay at home, as hard as that is, as that they that the vast majority of people will and do. And when something is transmitted human to human, that's your Most uh, effective cure. It's not an easy one. And certainly on a global basis, it's not easy. I'm going to say that we didn't need to have this problem. This never needed to escalate to the point that it is right now. But it is very typical of how leaders look at exponentiating problems. Now, that's a pretty big word. And, and usually if I start using that word, people move away from me at cocktail parties. <laughs> but, but it's important. It's important to understand how exponentiation works. So if it's okay with you, I'm just going to take sure. one minute sure. to, to talk about this. Yeah. So the example that I like to use is a lily, uh, our lily pads. So let's imagine for a moment that we have a pond. And in the pond, we have one lily pad. And every day, the number of lily pads is going to double. So on day one, we have one. On day two, we have two. On day three, we have four. Day four, we have eight. So it's going to go like that. So let's say using predictive analytics, I know that on day 36, that happens to be the the point, on day 36, the entire pond will be covered with lily pads and the pond will go into kind of an ecological disaster the fish will be starved for oxygen and other organisms begin dying and so the pond is going to start dying at that point so when i ask people because we've been trained over many many years our brains think in a linear way on what day is the pond only half full well most people go well half of 36 is 18 so Day 18, it's half full, right? And I have 18 days to make sure the lily pads don't cover the whole pond, but that's not correct. Even though our brains are trained to solve problems in a linear way, when we're up against an exponentiating problem, the, ha- the pond is half full on day 35. And 24 hours later, it's a disaster because remember, it's doubly. So on day 35, it doesn't look like a problem. You look out over the pond, only half's covered, a little bit here, a little bit there. On day 36, just 24 hours later, you're in meltdown. So you don't have 18 days. And the way that the coronavirus was treated is it was treated like a linear problem it wasn't treated like an exponentiating problem and so we kept mitigating we kept go, we kept solving it like okay we'll try to stop it here and we'll try to do this and we'll try to do this you can't solve an exponentiating problem that way because if it gets to day 35 you have 24 hours before you have a disaster and there's very little you can do in that 24 hours to stop it
1: so Does that what make should, sense what, yeah yeah so what should have been done in this case
2: well for one The Chinese should have gone into lockdown, should have stopped any uh, shipments, uh, transportation, anything. Number two, the World Health Organization, this is really on them. They didn't have eyes on this. They didn't have eyes on this. They didn't take this to the United Nations and say we need an immediate shutdown and quarantine of China. This didn't need to leave China. Uh, And, uh, you know, I, I unfortunately, as many people have been pointing out, we've been chasing exponentiation and that does not work. So it's very important in a crisis, right, because all crises are not the same. It's very important in a crisis to say, is this a linear problem or is this an exponentiating problem? And if it is, if it's exponentiating, I must overreact.
0: Well, here, there's a problem with that because you're going to, every year, we're going to overreact to every flu virus that comes out now. You know, well, there's like the a, flu, there's, there's well, like a all,
2: the flu virus wasn't, you know, it, it's really not, I, I really wish they weren't using that as the equivalent because this is not a flu. Fair enough. This is not a flu and the mortality rates are so much higher and are so much uh unfortunately, the mortality rates are going to look lower than they are because we mitigated so well. The mortality rates could have been much higher had we not mitigated. So looking back, we might go, well, you know, it was bad, but it was 1% of those who caught it. Uh, but had we not mitigated, it would the the mortality rates would have been much higher. There's no doubt in my mind. So, you know, this is always difficult. It's always difficult to make the case that you did something so that something wouldn't happen. It's really weak. (laughs)
0: It is really weak, actually. You know,
2: I I mean, how do do you how do you say, yes, I did this and then nothing happened? And that's your justification for overreacting. I would rather overreact and, and, and take the criticism, frankly.
0: Yeah. See, I, I think it's a leadership dilemma, and it's also um, it's one of uh, it's one of harkening for a completely different um, America and Canada, and and I'm in Canada, a completely different future, a future of um, overreactions. I think that's well. What we're no, in for. it doesn't
2: have to be. If you know if it's a linear problem, right? You can uh, you can systematically put in solutions and solve it. If it's an exponentiating problem, you don't have 18 days. You have 24 hours.
0: Do you have like a list of people that know the difference between uh, these these things when they're linear or exponentiating problems? Like, you know, people that actually know this. I
2: think understand that. What's difficult is to um, get politicians who are not scientists and who are so used to taking a very long time to respond to things. You know, the, the CDC is, is slow.
0: The CDC and the World Health Organization are packed with scientists, completely packed. And they allowed themselves to, in some ways, to be captured by China. The World Health Organization is captured. Well,
2: again, I believe this is on the World Health Organization. But
0: it's packed with scientists. I
2: mean, mean, they, they should have been all over this and they should have been sounding the alarm. Right on the floor of the United Nations. They should have been sounding the alarm and saying, this is a global catastrophe. We need to overreact.
0: But that organization. is it's
2: an exponentiating problem. And maybe they could have put up pictures of a pond and said, all right, I understand this is how you want to solve this. But it's going to go into a mode where all of you will be shutting down all of your commerce and, and, and requiring everyone to be sheltering in place.
0: But that, but that organization is stacked with scientists. Where do we turn? Like, how do we know who knows? Like, that's the well, this issue. this comes
2: back to my first book.
0: Yeah, at, I loved your first at, book. at a
2: certain point, if the world is not listening to scientists. They're not listening to technologists. This might be a pivotal moment in which science trumps politics, right? But, but at, uh, and no pun intended. But at, at this at this particular juncture. You know, if you want to know how much the world doesn't listen to scientists, I frequently ask people. I go, "Well, name one female leading scientist. There's, give me your name."
0: Uh, Jennifer Veach.
2: Okay, two. Uh, uh,
0: what's her name, Greg? Um, the other great Dr. Well, well, Mariana Figueroa. Mariana Figueroa. <laughs> uh, uh, Mariana Figueroa. My, my point For is you were yeah. able
2: to name one. That's a thousand percent better than the people on Main Street. They can't name one female scientist. And if I ask them to name one female genius, it gets even worse because then they go, and this is the only answer anyone gives, Madame Curie. Now, Madame Curie isn't alive anymore, one, and two, uh, was a very brilliant scientist, but not really a genius. So, apparently, we have no female scientific geniuses, and we'd be hard pressed to name even one. And when I ask to ma- name any scientist, they'll name, uh, you know, uh, Bill Nye or Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, Carl Sagan, populists. Sure,
0: they're right? kind of populists, sure.
2: Right. I mean, did you know who Dr. Fauci was before the coronavirus? No, nobody ever heard of him.
0: Sure. Premier the,
2: expert on infectious diseases, but we we don't; those aren't the people we elevate in society. You know, now everyone knows who Kim Kardashian is or the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, but you know, do they have any scientists on those programs? I don't, I've never watched them. but well, I don't think so.
0: The uh, the that's why maybe I, they I really should. yeah you know I, I it's maybe they should, but um uh the the Watchman's Rattle was was very very fascinating book to me. I mean when you you look at it's, it's a great, if people are into Jared diamond stuff, it's a great compliment and extension of what Jared diamond talks about. I really, I really love the book. Um, I think, I, I don't think we're on the verge of uh, being able to predict the future or pre-adapt. I think we're on the verge of your, your, of your fatalistic call and watchman's rattle more than the other. Um, because I, you know, I look at the leaders And, I mean, if we can't trust the CDC and we can't trust the World Health Organization, we're in serious trouble as a species with coming to 9 billion people soon, Rebecca.
2: Well, I would say it's 50-50. You know, (laughs) I'm more of an optimist than than you. Uh, We're either going to face a uh, unilateral, and by unilateral, I mean a global correction That is unlike anything we've ever experienced. Or, or we're going to rely more and more on machines to edit out opinions and, um, uh, and unproven beliefs. I, I feel a little bit hopeful because when my friends say, Hey, you know, it might rain tomorrow. Um, I sort of believe them. You know, they've lived in Oregon for 50 years. They probably, you know, have some extra information that's coming in through their senses that lets them know it's going to rain. But then, you know, when I walk into my house, I go, Alexa, what's the weather report? And she tells me there won't be any rain until three o'clock in the afternoon. I trust that more. Mm -hmm. And more and more we see people trust what Alexa says as opposed to something else. So, um, you know, I, I think our trust is shifting slowly toward machines that will turn our thermostat on and off for us and uh, will tell us the weather and uh, will will predict things, you know. Um, I mean, think about it. A hundred years ago, we didn't know whether a woman was going to ha- give birth to a boy or a girl. And now we have machines that can 100% predict whether you're going to give birth to a boy or girl. And if you take that and you just, you know, extrapolate from that, more and more over time, we'll be editing out the opinions and the um, interpretation of data and data itself will matter. And and, And to the extent that we can rely on data to make those decisions as opposed to people, I think we'll be better off because we'll be cleansing out those primitive instincts that I was talking about earlier.
0: But what about leadership?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, we're going to move to a, uh, a place where machines are going to be providing leadership. Oh, not my really God. <laughs> and I, I, I know, I, OK, I, I know I get a lot of flack for this because I trust machines more than people. And people think that that's very perverse. Uh, but, you know, they don't live in the technology world that I live in. Um, but machines are already starting to do that and i'll give you an example more and more judges who sit on the bench are relying on predictive analytics now to determine their arraignment uh outcomes and sentences now this isn't anything that's really been well known in fact uh, a few months ago someone from the new york times contacted me and said is is this a real thing and i said yes um what judges are looking at in order to be fair because who needs to be more fair than a judge and 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 you know you every now and again you hear about these instances for example in California where a young woman was raped and the judge gave the boy a few months of prison 3 months i think and and said well you come from a good family you know i mean you don't want judges making decisions based on that so what how are judges trying to make sure that they uh, absolutely cleanse themselves of any potential bias conscious or unconscious and the, it's the unconscious biases we have to be worried about right but by going and putting in the person's education level and their and their past uh, legal history and and uh, you know their employment uh, steadiness and and a number you know thousands of factors by putting those in the software can give them some guidelines now it's up to the judge to look at those guidelines and decide that they're going to follow them or not but in some ways it's trying to correct for conscious and unconscious biases on the bench and i believe the legal system will be better off for that. now there are some tricky problems with that before you because i already know your brain's going i can see even remotely your brain's going and going well I don't know if I like a machine deciding my sentence, you know, if I'm in front of a judge, I might want to pitch, you know, for a lighter sentence. And and I understand all of that. Understand that artificial intelligence is only as good as the data we put in. So if we have a disproportionate number of uh, black individuals in prisons, uh, will the AI algorithm factor that and have a bias against black people that come up uh to the uh, you know for the judge for sentencing you don't want those dis- th- those biases to continue and statistically that would be data that the computer would have it would say hey there's more black people in prison so i'm going to count the- i'm going to give that weight that against the person that's that's coming in for an arraignment uh sentencing so you you have to be careful with what ai about- And that you have to be sure that the data that goes in is neutral.
0: Well, what about when the, if the AI becomes so intelligent and conscious in a sense, and simply decides that, you know, what the problem is, is that it's all these diseased, stupid, naked apes running around. They're the problem. Like, you know, there's a, there's a sense that why, and we were talking to Dr. David Pasig about this. Why, why does it, why does AI doesn't exist necessarily to serve the interests of human beings. If we create it, it serves its own interests or maybe the interests of something else. That's a problem.
2: Well, you know, I I realize, you know, we've all been the victims of science fiction (laughs) movies where Mm -hmm. AI takes over the world and humans are dispensable or worse yet become, you know, batteries to operate, uh, robotics and, and humans. And, and I, I love, sci- don't get me wrong. I love science fiction, sure. but there's a reason they call it science fiction.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: it's not science fact. Uh, although sometimes it, you know, does materialize, sure, and, it does, and, yeah. uh, but, but I, I, I don't, I don't see it. Uh, I don't see that materializing. Uh, I think that what we're going to have is not a replacement where, A.I. wants to dominate humans or humans want to dominate A.I. I think it'll be more like what Ray Kurzweil explains, which is a a transcendence where there'll be a man machine meld. We already see this. Uh, And and let me let me reassure your audience by saying that a good example of that not happening is there are many people that have uh, robotic powered arms and legs, soldiers returning from war and, and people that become victims of car accidents and all and they have robotically controlled hearts or arms or legs or appendages. And you don't worry that that appendage is going to suddenly start punching you in the face because it got smart and decided that, you know, I don't need you anymore. I mean, the, the appendages don't wildly go out of control and, and decide, well, my, my uh, you know, electronic legs are going to walk over here because I don't want to listen to you anymore. I mean, I, I, I think it's a man-machine meld that is more likely, we'll become more machine dependent. That's our best hope, by the way. Our best hope is to become more dependent on machines because otherwise we're bonobos in nice suits with technology. Uh, Ed Wilson had a great expression. He said, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. And hmm. that's our problem. And I've never heard it said more succinctly.
0: The in your book you you've referenced that you've um, coached and advised many business leaders. In a time of crisis like this, our audience is largely entrepreneurs and managers of of companies, corporations. What would you? What advice would you, if you have any, would you give
1: them now, Rebecca?
2: Um, I, I two
1: words. Do everything.
2: Do everything you can think to do. And then 24 hours later, some of the things that you thought would produce a result won't. So you need immediate feedback, immediate communications as to what strategies are working and what are not. So in many of the large corporations, I have regular track and fast track. Right. I have things that we're going to fast track because we know that they have a high probability of working, and then those that we're going to monitor. You, you can't feed everything forever. But if you think about it as a funnel, as I was explaining how venture capitalists work, venture capitalists are not, ex, you know, I know a lot of venture capitalists, and they're very wealthy and very successful. They're not experts at success. They're experts at, at failure. They look at a high failure rate environment and say, I can't call which company in this emerging field is going to be the winner. There's no way. All the analytics in the world, all the predictive, you know, modeling in the world isn't going to tell me which company is going to be the big winner in this field. And so what they do is they invest on a thin level and then they monitor, they monitor. So think of it as a funnel. Do as many things as you can. Watch them. The ones that are not working, triage time, done. And you keep getting down to those things that will allow you to to move more swiftly. That's the first thing. The second thing is, hopefully you've talked to a futurist or consulted with a futurist that was able to put systems into place that you can basically flip the switch and go into crisis mode. An example for that, a very easy example to understand, is in hospitals. You have regular protocols. This person comes in, they get checked this way, they fill out the medical records, you check insurance, so on and so forth. So, what happens when the hospital is at full capacity? Are you going to keep those protocols? No, you should have already defined at this level, we have this protocol. At this level, we go into orange protocol. At this level, when we're 10% over capacity, we go into yellow protocol. You already have that all set up. So that you know, over the speaker, you tell all nurses and all doctors, we're in yellow protocol now, right? It's a streamlined version. We're not checking people's insurance anymore. We're not validating this. We're we're streamlining it. We're cutting it down and we're cutting it down until we get down to the minimum we can do, right? For each patient coming in the door. Those would be systems you'd set up in advance. In the event that you have a crisis or a tsunami hit you right away. And you hmm. want to have those in every organization.
0: I want to ask you um, a question about On the Verge. That why didn't wh- I feel like, from my perspective, after reading both books, there's like The Watchman's Rattle is like a, a warning against um, pursuing the fatalistic flaws of our ancestors in a sense right let's not walk the same path we know the path yes on the verge seems to me to be somewhat about our destiny or but you didn't address like this, i was waiting for it, the spiritual side of that all right like a as a call to our hearts and minds to to reach for a new destiny or something do you understand what i'm getting at here it yes so you practical. wanted you
2: wanted something inspirational
0: Yes, yes,
2: yes. I understand. I'm a scientist. <laughs>
0: Hello. <laughs> See, I, I feel like it I feel like it's You go to yeah.
2: church for that.
0: Yeah. No, but I feel like on the verge is like a practical guide to choosing your destiny. You know, for human for the human You Couldn't species.
2: have said it better.
0: You know? But <laughs> it's like You could, it, it,
2: could not have said it better. Yes, it's a practical guide to choose your destiny. I I I am not I'm not your president. I'm not a leader. It is not for me to say how humanity should go. Uh, And as far as spirituality goes, you know, it's not for me to tell you to be faith-based or to aspire to be a better human being or how you should aspire or which God is the true God. This is not this is not my area. My area is simply to look at data, to look at information, to try to spot trends, try to get out ahead of things that would be very negative, uncomfortable, potentially disastrous. This is what we do in science. Do I have my own personal beliefs? Sure, but they don't belong in my profession. Otherwise, Uh I'd be doing what all the politicians are doing, and I I would be misleading people with unproven beliefs rather than the things that have been proved
0: some of the things that you talked about in your book are very uncomfortable um for people to digest thank you (laughs) no i mean i mean i I, I
2: take the compliment Uh, (laughs) it is my job to nudge and poke and say well let's think about this let's see if there are things that we can do where are we potentially headed based on previous patterns i have looked at the history of all great societies and all of them show these four stages prior Mm -hmm. to collapse.
0: That's scary as heck.
2: All of them. There's none that don't show it. So we know if we're driving toward a cliff, there are a number of road signs that say cliff ahead, cliff ahead, cliff ahead. Does that mean you can't turn the car around?
0: I think, but the problem is these problems propel themselves in a way, Rebecca. They're, they're like self-perpetuating because you get into that, 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 what you talked about in, in rattle where, where the people switch off, they can't understand it anymore. And so they reach for easy. Um, I don't want to say faith-based cause I don't want to confuse the issue, but they reach for superstitions is probably a better word. Or, yes, because or
2: that's really easy. I mean, yes. Your brain, agreed. think about your brain. When you have to prove a fact, that's a, in science, that's a very rigorous process. Sure. Right. You you have to you have to uh, prove it under a variety of circumstances. We, we have we have scientific methods that are very it's very hard to prove anything. Right. Even even evolution is a theory. Yeah. Hasn't been but proven. So, you know, it's very hard to prove a fact. A belief. Yeah, that's that's easy lifting for the. For brain. Sure. I, I tell you something, you believe it or you don't believe it. Done. Right. Fantastic. So believe me, it's easy. Our brains get lazy. We just want to believe we believe people or we don't. I had a hard time. Uh, you know, my son will kill me for this. But two weeks ago, I had a very difficult conversation with my son who's in his uh, early 30s. And I said, hey, I really want you to to start, you know, uh, thinking about sheltering in place over the coronavirus. This is two weeks ago. So that might as well have been two years ago. Sure, and and he said, "Oh, mom, it's just another Y two Th- K. This is my own child." <laughs> yeah,
0: sure, sure. And his mom's a futurist. Look, I can't get my kids to not listen. Not in hey. our
2: household, I'm not. Like, let's <laughs> just be clear. Not with so, the kids, I'm
0: not. So, there, is this is this this whole pandemic thing to me? It strikes as a constitutional crisis, and whether or not our institutions, whether they be the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Or, you know, our governments and this sort of stuff, I think this is a crisis of, of, of constitutionality. And I know that's not your field of expertise, but I think that people are going to have to, if they want to, if, if what you say is true, which, you know, I'm not 100% in that camp with you, but I, I understand the the, the the idea of the watchman's rattle. I get it. And you're pointing to these different things that we, these different tools we can use to make better, more accurate decisions. And I get that, but I don't see the, this is the, this is the whole issue that with China's response to the crisis was better than our response to the crisis, right? There's a crisis of confidence here in our own system and institutions to be able to tackle the problems of the future. And what's happening is exactly what you talk about in the Watchman's Rattle, where there's all different manner of superstitions and hypo- false hypotheses and, and demigods coming out of the works and people making comments. And, you know, the, the egg being thrown at the CDC, the, the world health organization is responsible for all that. This is really scary actually for the average light bulb well, it is. running it, around. It
2: is. And remember what Wilson says, we're basically running on medieval institutions and that is absolutely true. Uh, it doesn't matter what those institutions do. In in my view, politics is irre- just doesn't even play a role. I'm not worried about the leaders. The fact is we have technology and science to solve almost every problem humanity faces today. But there are not media outlets like yourselves that is getting the information out to the public because all the media wants to talk about is Donald Trump's latest tweet oh, or a meltdown at a uh, press conference. That's all they're interested in. They're not interested in getting information out. But every problem, if you name a problem, you know, i sometimes I go on programs that I, and they have call-ins and I say, just name a problem. And someone says, homelessness. And I said, all right, go to YouTube right now. And in China, they're using a large scale 3D Vulcan printer to print 10, 1,800 square foot houses a day at a cost of about $3,500. Now, in the city of Long Beach, I happened to ask, you know, was down there and said, well, you know, how much does, do you have to pay to house someone and take care of someone who's homeless? And they said about $30,000 a year. That was the ticket. And I said, well, why don't you just give them a house for 3500 and so what are you talking about? And I said, all of this information is available on, on YouTube. You can go on there. You can see the Chinese putting up these houses. They're very durable. They're very safe. And giving homeless people a home for $3,500. It's a bargain. Do it. Okay, homeless problem done. And then the next thing was, well, energy. I, you know, what should we do for energy? 20 years ago, NASA began testing uh, space-based solar that could basically transmit in very very low grade microwaves power from solar uh panels out in outer space so that we didn't have the interference of weather or any of those things didn't matter where you live didn't matter where you went we can we can bring power to you from outer space environmentally it's it's a big plus no nope, NASA couldn't get any support for it
0: i read that so in your the book the
2: japanese by the way jaxa their, their japanese space agency said that they're going to go to start a massive space-based solar program in Japan as of the end of this year. They're they're moving to that. So these panels and windmills and all these things, dams that we're building all over the, the, the planet, we don't really need those. And we've already proven the concept and, you know, it, it works. And so there, we have all of these solutions. And by the way, most of them were developed here in the united states it's just there's no funding it doesn't get out it doesn't fit an economic model politicians are not scientists they're lawyers mm-hmm. what are lawyers trained to do argue
0: argue the counterpoint
2: argue the counterpoint it's not safe it, it's untested we don't have the money for it. i mean they're going to come up with you know we, we used to call lawyers antibodies <laughs> you know, they're government antibodies right i got
0: keep i got better names out. for lawyers i got better names for lawyers rebecca but anyway
2: right keep everything out uh yeah. but but there's a there's a a concept in health which is something i'm very interested in it's <laughs> called i'm gonna mispronounce it cytokine or cytokine and it's a point at which the cells in your body become confused and they start attacking the healthy cells mm. and i think that's your point Your point is, is that the government, you don't have faith in the leadership in the government, and I understand that, but have faith in the scientists here in the United States who have developed solutions for every problem that we have.
0: I don't know if faith is the word I'm willing to use, Um, but we need good leadership. We need good leadership to... Where do we get it? You know, this is a crisis of democracy, Rebecca. And it's a crisis of morality. And this is where I think, this is where I think you, this is where I think the idea of having faith in scientists breaks down is that the problem is a moral problem. Because the, we need leaders of substance that can, in, in hard times, to make proper choices for us that aren't scientists scientists are like putting priests in charge it's like i know it sounds crazy to say that but there's a sense in which a lot of scientists don't have the the they don't have the infrastructure like scientists are in charge of the world health organization the scientists are in charge of the. i understand that
2: but if you come down with coronavirus are you going to go to church or a hospital
0: i'm going to church for sure I. That's what I have the problem with this whole thing. Is that so? You're going to
2: go to church before you go see a doctor.
0: I want the. I would rather have a priest giving me last rites. I, I just
2: want you to know that that is most people when they are sick call a doctor, right? A scientist.
0: But I'm saying specifically the call coronavirus. Their no, no.
2: Until the scientist was unable to help them.
0: You asked me about the coronavirus, not about every other type uh, of sickness.
2: Well, I, I the, the point I'm making is you may already be putting your faith in your trust in science and not know it. If if your first call is to a doctor and your last call is to a priest,
0: Yes. No. So any other disease that what I don't want is I don't want to be in some uh, in some room with surrounded by people in suits where my family can't say bye to me with a ventilator in me. I wouldn't want that. And I think a lot of I think a lot of people share that feeling. You know, when I if I'm dying from the coronavirus, I want to say goodbye to my loved ones and I want to have a funeral for me. (laughs) You know, I want to have a funeral (laughs) for my father if he dies. You know, and all of this stuff has been taken away from people and people are going to have massive resentments for this after. And it's going to be more difficult to appeal to their minds when you've stabbed them in the heart. You understand what I mean?
2: I do understand, but, but I also understand the other side of it, which is as a scientist, our job would be to save your life. It's to I would, save you. It's to save your life. It's not, it's not, it's to do everything within our power and if that means pulling you away from your family then it, that's what it means it it doesn't mean making a judgment now that said in cases where we know people are not going to make it you know you've been on a ventilator 20 days whatever they are allowing the families in they're 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 offering uh, face shields and masks and those kinds of things we didn't have pp enough ppe to be able to give them to all the family, to protect the family members. Mm-hmm. Because remember, in addition to the person dying, we have to protect the people that are, you know, don't have the disease. And we just didn't have that capability. But they're doing it now. They're, they're allowing fathers to come into the delivery rooms uh, properly protected. So mm-hmm. once the PPE was available, that, that has been loosening up. I know we're talking about extreme cases where they just mm-hmm. weren't able to do that. But remember, you know, from a scientific standpoint, it's, we want to save your life and we want to do everything, whether it's vaccines or whether it's faster testing or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, equipping you with with PPE so that you won't be contagious and won't get the disease. Um, you know, that that's the realm of science. I always have problems when scientists start, try to talk about faith. And and those kinds of things, because that's not something that science can deal with.
0: Right, exactly.
2: We have no business trying to deal with that now. Richard Dawkins, and you know, uh, who I've gotten to know very well over the years, you know, he's become the poster. He's a he's a premier evolutionary biologist, and he's become the poster child for atheism. And I I just don't see where that is any business of sciences. We cannot. Prove or disprove, faith is real. Yes. It's ha- it, it, it's important. We we can't we can't prove uh, that there's a god. We can't prove there's no god. We can't prove which is the right god. We can't prove any of those things. Why would scientists ever venture out into those areas? Uh,
0: Dawkins is in at risk of being considered the high priest of atheism. That's how uh, he
2: is. And 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 you know, you know for me, that's tragic. That's tragic because as a scientist, it's practically like saying, uh, you know, all the rules that govern uh, empirical research don't matter. My opinion matters.
0: Exactly. Like the God, like the, the selfish gene was absolutely incredible. The God delusion was really vindictive and resentful in a way. I don't know if you read that one. uh,
2: Yes, I did. And I've read all of his books and I, you know, it is not, it is not my place. Mm Hmm. It is not my place as a scientist. What is my place is to try to solve problems, right? And to make the world better for, and by the world, I mean, for all creatures to, mm-hmm. to to do what I can do to communicate that there are solutions that are better for humanity, better for the planet, better in all ways. They exist. They need support and real leadership, in my opinion. Would support these solutions, you know, would not allow homelessness to become a problem year after year after year. You know, I have fatigue. I have problem fatigue. Yeah, sure. For a lot of people. Sure. Abortion, homelessness, you know, uh, uh, debt. People are going into credit card, high interest credit card debt like nobody's business. Uh, You know, uh, health care problems year after year every time we have an election they they here they open up the trunk and trot out the same problems climate change you know uh, <laughs> uh, fuel standards you know. and and i and i'm going you know look i'm 65 years old we had these problems when i was in my 20s i'm sure. done already yeah we already sure. solved them
0: Right. So the, the, you mentioned saving lives, but I, I think you also, I think where the reason why, like at the waterboard or whatever that you talked about in your book, these different places that you had, humans want their souls saved, not their lives. And I think that goes back to our basic instincts as creatures. I mean, there's this idea from science that we are, you know, the third chimpanzee, according to Jared Diamond. But then you turn around to other institutions, non-scientific ones, and we are made in the image and likeness of God. And so those that's cognitive dissonance. You can't believe those two things at the same time and not be crazy. So I, I think that at once there needs well, to be. A- I,
2: I, I don't agree with you at all. I don't agree with you at all. And I will tell you why. Because as a scientist, I live with the ambivalence every day. There are many, many days where two things don't go together. They can't possibly be both right, but thank God we don't throw them away.
1: <laughs> we sure. don't.
2: We we don't. Did, did you know that Einstein's theory of relativity exactly contradicts Newton's theory of gravity?
0: Sure. Okay. And which
2: in, one do you think is is you don't believe in? Do well, you no, not Ma- believe in relativity or gravity?
0: Or even uh, Max Planck? It even gets worse with quantum mechanics with quantum uh, physics. Very it gets much
2: worse. so, and so. Why, why is it that we can say, okay, these things don't fit together. They contradict each other, but we're not throwing any of them out we, because all of them are sort of vital to getting man on the moon. We, we have to trust these things. You may not be able to reconcile today, right? The Christian faith with evolution. So what?
0: I don't think it matters. I don't it think it doesn't that, I mean,
2: matter. I
0: don't think it matters. I don't think you they're need to both even
2: right. Exactly. I agree with they're you. one hundred right. Let's settle the argument here on this I agree program. Yes. For, <coughs> for all of humanity. Agreed. They're both right. Absolutely. Now, Don't ask me how they're both right. How they both go together. They go together the same way Newton's theory and Einstein's theory go together. Sometime in the future. Big, big TBD. Yes. To be determined. We don't know. But this is where I get into your brain doesn't like that. Nobody's brain likes that. Nobody's brain likes ambivalence. What we want is we want to decide. And so we're very likely to allow an unproven belief or an opinion to make that decision for us mm-hmm. rather than say both are right. And we don't know how they fit together at this particular point in time. Now, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I think of the timeline of hundreds of millions of years. Sure. I'm not bothered by the fact that we can't reconcile that or anything else in science, you know. But but I think that to the extent that you can learn to live with ambivalence, you'll be happier. You'll be happier hmm. not deciding.
0: You know, it's it, that's there's a a um, uh, a, uh, a literary concept that was created by a guy named John Keats. And it's called negative capability. And what he was talking about was how all great literature and Christ and all the Greek tragedies and all this sort of stuff have the ability to present a problem without solving it, right? Living in the mystery, right? You live in the mystery. Like, so for example, um, you know, if somebody, there's nothing worse for me than entering a conversation about the meeting of the Adam and Eve story and somebody asked me if it's true or not. And it's like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Oh, did the world start with Adam and Eve or whatever? It's like, if you're asking an anthropological question about a mythological story, you you don't understand what either of those two things are about, right? One, that's exactly
2: right. And and I get asked, you know, many times people say, hey, you know, uh, evolution can't possibly be true because then Adam and Eve would have been eaten by dinosaurs. Right. And I mean, and, and I go, Okay, uh, we can't I have know. a conversation.
0: We can't have uh, a conversation. We
2: can't have the conversation because there's no data to resolve that conversation. And where there's no factual data, scientists shouldn't be having the conversation at all.
0: If you, if you, if you, you have, can,
2: you're, you know what I love. I love when you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. Sure. When there's no data either way to resolve it, and you get to believe whatever you want to believe, it's a free for all. Sure. Right? So when people ask me, well you're a scientist, you know, how can you be faith-based? I'm actually, you know, a faith-based individual and most scientists I know are actually pretty religious.
0: Yeah, a lot of them are. That
2: shocks people. How can you? And I go because we're used to not resolving things. <laughs> Right, mm-hmm. every day we can't resolve data that we have, and so mm-hmm. we're we're very comfortable with that. I'm very comfortable being faith based and also being a, a data wonk. Uh, I do both, and when I run into situations where things don't fit together, I certainly don't decide one is wrong.
0: Someone that, got that to-
2: would be a very immature scientist to do that.
0: Someone's got to stand up and say to the people of the West or America or whatever, there are questions about science and science and there are questions about morality and faith. And those are different subjects. And we get ourselves completely lost and in arguments when we mix those two things together. It's very difficult for us, for people to. I I don't
2: think they belong together. I, I don't think that science has any business talking about morality and vice versa. Except for to say, oh, you hear my, my lab in the bathroom, probably. I have a. I excuse me. I have a seven month old lab, and he's been very good this morning. Uh, but as a biologist, I can tell you, I have no control over this this puppy. Uh, you know, until he's three years old, I'm. I'm. You know, I'm in for it. I've got. I've uh, formally adopted uh, the Marley dog in the movie uh He has ripped up my yard and and torn up my shoes and and uh it's been uh, a wonderful experience to be home and observing him grow this way so I apologize for that but i back to the morality issue i i i science is not a moral uh is it has no business in morality we're dealing with data we're dealing with facts to the best of our ability uh that doesn't mean that we are disrespectful of morality and we don't see how it plays in making critical decisions and particularly in leadership you know you want morality in leadership unless that morality dictates decisions that go against facts and when that morality begins to override factual data you have a problem because it's that individual's morality now, which is being forced on other people against empirical evidence. That's the only place where there's a rub. And from, as a scientist, you know, I'm going to err on the factual side. Mm -hmm. I'm going to err on the factual side and I'm going to look at that and, and, and to the best of my ability, interpret that. But does that mean that if we come across a coronavirus and we say, well, older people are more susceptible. Does that mean that we should say, uh, as I, I think there was some leader in, in um, excuse me, but I think it was in the South that said, well, old people should be prepared to sacrifice themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't remember who it was, but somebody was on the media that, that I, I can't even believe that they said that. Um, you know, that's where that morality begins to come in. Do I believe that that, should be the case? Absolutely not. We should attend to as many people. Uh, I I, I personally, my own philosophy is that of uh, the great jurist uh, Jeremy Beth- Bentham, Bentham, who said, the greatest happiness for the greatest number. I always like it when things are very succinct. Sure. And I think that we should be thinking about public policy and systems and And building societies that look for the solutions that are the greatest, uh, you know, uh, happiness for the greatest number. And fortunately, we have the technology that the greatest number means all of us. We didn't have that in the 1800s, but we do now.
1: Wow.
0: Rebecca Costa, thank you for being a guest on the Get a Grip on Lightning podcast.
2: Well, thank you. And I apologize for my dog. Oh, no problem. The background
0: there. Yeah, thank you very much. At this At this time, I think everybody's understanding how that goes. Folks, if you enjoyed this, check out RebeccaCosta.com. Do I have that right, Rebecca? Yes, that's right.
2: RebeccaCosta.com.
0: Yes, and read her books, especially The Watchman's Rattle, one of my favorite books I've ever read. So really, really great. Um, if you're into that kind of nonfiction, Nicholas Nassim Taleb kind of Jared uh, Diamond uh, kind of stuff, she goes right along with those guys. So that was great. On the Verge is her other most recent book. And of course, this is brought to you by the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to NAILD.org, Greg.
1: Check them out. Always there. Thank
2: Thank you so much. Really enjoyed speaking
1: with you. you. Thank you. Bye for now.